All right, good morning. How are we doing? Hey, great to have you here. If I haven't yet met you personally, my name is Sean, and I have the opportunity to serve as the campus pastor here at Willow Creek South Barrington. It's great to have you this morning. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, happy Mother's Day uh, to everybody. It's great to have you here on Mother's Day. We'd love to celebrate all the women in the room, uh, not just our biological moms, but we know that in the room there are stepmoms, there are aunts, there are grandparents, there are small group leaders, so many women who have such a profound influence on our lives and who we are. And to all of you, uh, we just say thanks for who you are and how God uses you in such a special way in our lives. Let's real quick just give it up for our moms uh, just one more time. Uh, one other thing that I want to celebrate before we jump in today, if you were here last week, you know that we provided you a, a financial update of where we're at as a church. If you, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and, and look at that. But we communicated a need, and we asked that you potentially step into the, the need. And I was really, really encouraged by the response of our church, not just in the amount that was given, but more specifically in the number of people who chose to respond. Uh, we received about 414 more gifts than expected last week. And so it's just a number of people who are locking arms, jumping into this thing together to really fuel the mission forward. And so that's a really, really powerful thing to celebrate. Uh, but today we're going to continue our series that we started last week. Albert Tate was on fire last week as we kicked off this series called There's More. And, and I don't know what your experience is like, but, but sometimes I go through life and you just kind of feel like there's got to be something more. It just feels like there should be something more. The way sometimes I talk about it is there's times we go through life, but there's not a, life go, a lot of life going through us. You ever been there? Then we're going through life, but it doesn't feel like there's a lot of life going through us. And it leaves us with this question, is, is there possibly more? And last week, Albert talked about like more of God's presence. Today, we're going to talk about more joy in your family. Now, in order to talk about more joy in your family, I thought I'd bring a picture of my family just in case you haven't met them. This is my wife, Lindsay, uh, most beautiful woman I know. Uh, these are my two boys. This is Levi and Austin. Now, uh, this picture was taken about two years ago. I tell Lindsay, we haven't aged a bit. We are as ridiculously good looking today as we were two years ago. My boys, they've grown up significantly in two years. My oldest son, Levi, looks me dead in the eyeballs today, and uh, it's, it's kind of fun to watch them growing up in their journey. Now, when, when I talk about family, like more joy in our family, uh, though my family context I just showed you, what I recognize is that everybody's family context looks very different. Uh, for some of you, you're married, you do have kids at home, but ironically enough, that's probably the minority in the room. Uh, because there are all kinds of other family dynamics that, that exist in the room. Some of you, you know, you're, you're college students or you're single, you're not yet married, or maybe you're married and you don't have kids. Uh, maybe you're empty nesters, and so you have kids, they're just no longer in the home, right? And so there are all kinds of different dynamics at play. And so when I talk about family, I'm not just talking about those of you who are married who have kids in the household. All of us have family dynamics, and so when we talk about joy in your family, I want to broaden your perspective of what family could look like that would certainly include your particular situation. This message is for single people and married people. It's for those who have kids or those who don't have kids. Uh, it's for those who have kids in their household and those whose kids have already graduated, moved out of the, this, their household. This message truly is for everybody as you think about family. Now, what I love about the Bible is the Bible typically expands our view of who we consider when we talk about family. 
uh, in Scripture. When you see the word family, or you see the word household, it's not just referring to those that you are blood relatives with that, that live under the same roof. Instead, it's a much broader picture than that. Typically, it's anybody connected to you in a really, really close way. In the ancient world, if there was a servant in your house, they would be considered a part of your family. Uh, sometimes close friends, sometimes neighbors that were deeply connected into your bloodline, they would have been considered a part of that household and family. So what I'd love for you to do is to think about who is your family? Again, not just who are you bloodline related to, but who do you do life with? Who are you closest to? And when it comes to those relationships, how do we maximize those that we experience the most joy possible with our family? There's, there's more joy to be had in our family. Now, in the ancient world, what they typically did is they anchored their family uh, around a few different books of the Bible. And so we're actually going to be in the book of Deuteronomy today. It's the fifth book of the Bible. Uh, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. In the ancient world, that was called the Pentateuch or, or the Torah. It was, it was the anchoring point for the entire ancient Jewish family. And within the Torah, there were a couple of verses that were even more anchoring for the family. This is one. It might sound somewhat familiar to you. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to start at verse 4. It says this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Does that sound somewhat familiar? Maybe you heard that before. Now, what's interesting, it, it starts out by saying, hear, O Israel. The word hear is not simply meaning just to listen. Now, certainly it's, it, it, it includes that, but it's not just to listen. It's also to listen and respond, to listen and take action. And then it goes into what Jesus later identifies as the single greatest commandment in all of Scripture, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That word love, interestingly enough, in our culture, today's culture, we think about love oftentimes as a feeling. It's, it's when the feelings well up. I love somebody when I have all these feelings toward them. Sometimes we even apply love toward other things that we have feelings for. I love ice cream. I've got feelings for ice cream, Right? I would apply it to sports teams I like. I would say I love the Cubs, right? So sometimes as we have these strong feelings, and we tend to think about in our culture that that connotates love, when, when, when love is described here, it's far more than a feeling. It's far more than an emotion. It might include our emotions, but what it really is, love is a choice. Love is a commitment. Love is a devotion. Now, I understand that as a Cubs fan. Because sometimes I have really good feelings for the Cubs. And sometimes I have no feelings or bad feelings for the Cubs, right? But what I love about this particular passage and, and when it talks about love being an action or choice is even when the feelings are absent, I still choose to be committed. Even when the feelings are not there, I choose to be devoted. And that's what it's describing about our perspective in our relationship with God that sometimes we do have these emotionally high spiritual moments that we feel really connected to God, and other times emotionally we feel somewhat disconnected. But regardless if I'm at the highest to high or the lowest to low, when it comes to my emotions, the question becomes, will I choose God every day? Will I commit myself to him every day? Will I devote myself to him every day? That's what true love is. It's a choice, it's a commitment, it's a devotion. 
Now, what's interesting about this particular passage, that it's the greatest commandment in all of Scripture and became an anchoring point for the ancient family. Uh, what I'm going to do today is I want to look at this particular passage, and I want to draw out two values and four venues. Two values, four venues, all coming from this text. Here's what it says next. Here's the first value, by the way. First value is this, that we've got to be people who, who are committed to share his truth Here's what it says next after that greatest commandment. It says, these commandments I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Then it says this, impress them on your children. Now, let me kind of expand that. I would say impress them on your family. We, we got to be people who are willing to share his truth within our families. Now, when I say that, there's a lot of ways to share truth. Sometimes what people will do is they will take God's truth and they will beat people up with God's truth. That's not what we're talking about today. It's not just about what we're communicating, how we communicate it really matters. I mean, if it really is good news, it needs to feel like good news with those who we're sharing it with, right? And so sometimes we can beat people up with God's truth. We can shame people with God's truth. That's not what he's getting at. There's actually something far more important that we get to invest, impress on our children in our families as it relates to God's truth. It makes me think about it this way. A little bit later in scripture, when, when Paul's writing about God's truth, he, he writes about it in this way, gives us an image. He says, stand firm then with the belt of truth that's buckled around your waist. Now, I grew up in Texas and grew up in Texas, uh, a belt was sometimes used as a disciplinary tool. Does anybody have any kind of experience with this, right? Uh, the belt can be a disciplinary type of, of tool, not as much in today's terms, which is really good, but again, it can be used to beat somebody else up in some ways. But I don't think that's what Paul's getting at when he talks about the belt of truth, like God's truth being like a belt. He says, because it's wrapped around you and buckled with you and you. How, how many of you have ever... How many of you ever seen a strongman competition? You ever seen these on TV? Okay, like seven of you. Great. But let me explain it to you for the rest of you. Uh, these strongman competitions are mind-boggling to me. You've got these big, burly dudes, and they're like throwing logs over, you know, really high things, or they're picking up a boulder that weighs a few hundred pounds, or I saw one guy get strapped to a semi-truck, and he's like pulling the semi-truck. It's not right. But if you ever watch the strongman competition, every single time, every single one of these people, they're always wearing a belt. The belt looks something like this. Now, I'm not much into lifting weights. I know looks are deceiving. You look at me and you think, man, that is the, that is the strongest human I've ever seen. Now, I know looks are deceiving, but the truth is I don't lift weights. They are way too heavy. But if I did... I might wear a belt like this. You go to the gym, you watch people who are powerlifting, they're always wearing this belt. Now, I always thought that that belt was there because it protects your back, right? That it, it keeps you from lifting incorrectly and hurting your back in some way. And though that's probably true, the belt actually serves in a different way. The truth is with these weightlifting belts, when you put them around the, the mid part of your body, it actually constricts the mid part of your body, giving you greater stability and actually gives you greater strength. You can lift more weight when you're wearing this belt. And I wonder if that's kind of the idea that Paul had in mind when he talks about God's truth being this belt that gets wrapped around our waist. Because there's something about God's truth when it lands well that it is it's a stabilizing force in our lives. It gives us great strength in our lives. You and I know this to be true. 
because how unstabilizing a, a lie can become in our life. If I'm relating to somebody and that person is lying to me, what happens? There creates distrust in that relationship. It's very, very unstable. If I build my life on something that is a lie, my life will be incredibly unstable. But what God's truth does is God's truth gives us strength. What God's truth does is God's truth creates stability. That's why he says, impress this on your family. Because when God's truth is impressed in our family, when God's truth, it permeates in our family, it gives us strength as a family. It gives us stability as a family. And so we share God's truth. Because when God's truth wins the day, our family wins along the way. So that's value one. We share God's truth. Here's value two. We commit to leaving a godly legacy. We, 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 we leave a godly legacy. Here, here's what it says a couple of verses earlier. Uh, Moses is writing, he says that these are the commands, the decrees, the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that, check this out, so that you, your children, and then their children after them may also fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all the decrees and commands that I give you. And then look at this last phrase, and so that you may enjoy a long life. And so if you want more joy in your family, it's connected to this legacy type of, of lifestyle that we live in such a way that has an impact not only on our lives, but for our children and our children's children. There's this, there's this legacy that's left. Now here's the truth. Every single person here will leave some sort of legacy. Every single person here will have some sort of influence or make some sort of impression on those that you're closest to over the course of the long haul. It's almost impossible to leave, uh, to not leave a legacy in some way. But the truth is, if you look back over your family, oftentimes there are things that have been going on for generations and generations and generations. Sometimes those are great things, and sometimes those are incredibly challenging and difficult things. Uh, some of you may know this about me. I've, I've shared this in my own story that, that, that in my family, we were plagued for generations and generations with alcoholism. Uh, I mean, it, it claimed lives, it destroyed families, and it was a generational pattern. Uh, my, my grandfather uh, was an alcoholic, and uh, I remember growing up going to AA meetings with my granddad, which, which I love. Now, what's interesting is I only knew my granddad as a recovering alcoholic, but I've heard stories about what it was looked like, what, what life looked like far before he got into recovery. Uh, he would tell stories, or my mom would tell stories about when she was like eight years old, she would go to the bar with my granddad, and he would be too intoxicated to get in a car and drive home, and so what did he do? He actually put my mom in his lap because she couldn't reach the pedals. She would tell him which pedal to press, and she would drive the car home. And so that was kind of the, the, the family that my mom grew up in. But there was some point in the line that, that my grandfather kind of said, enough's enough. That this thing that has plagued our family for generations, he wasn't the first. It, for generations, the family had been plagued with alcoholism. And he finally said, by God's grace, it stops with me. 
by God's grace, I'm not going to continue the pattern that has plagued our family for generation and generation. This now stops with me. And so he got himself into recovery. He got himself into relationships that could provide the right support for him. He went to AA almost every single day for all the years that I knew him. He was a recovering alcoholic for almost 20 years before the day he died. Here's the beautiful thing. You can clap for that. I think it's an amazing thing. Here's the beautiful thing. Because he chose to draw a line in the sand to create a different type of legacy, my mom didn't know the alcoholism cycle that had plagued the, the, the family for generations. Neither have I known it, neither have my kids known it. There's a new legacy that started, a new pattern, a new generational legacy that's passed on from generation to generation by God's grace. We all have those types of things. And the reality is, for some of us, the cycle needs to stop with us. And a new pattern can start with us because, again, we're all going to leave some sort of a legacy. But I think the challenge is, will we leave a godly legacy? Will what happens for generations to come be godly based on how we chose to live our lives and live our journeys? Now, as I think about legacy, there's a couple of, I think, really important principles to lean into. Legacies are not measured by days and weeks. Legacies are measured by years, if not decades, right? For me, that gives me actually great hope. The second piece about legacies are this. Legacies are, are very rarely created by a few really big moments. Legacies are formed by the small things that happen consistently every day over the course of time. And they're typically, you can't even measure them until you look at it from a big picture and you take a step back of what God's done over the course of time. And so the question becomes, what are we doing every day, consistently, intentionally, that allow God to shape a different type of legacy? What's your legacy? The reason why that matters for me is this. When I get discouraged around family stuff, it typically is what's happening in the moment of a day. If I'm really honest with you, we had a pretty hard and messy week as a family. And sometimes I can get really discouraged about that. I can get really down about that. You, get, you feel like, oh my gosh, what does the trajectory look like? But legacy causes me to pause and look up and recognize that my kids are actually God's kids, and recognize that God has a hope and a plan and a dream for them just as much as I do. And my job is to show up every day, be present, be consistent, be intentional, day after day trusting that what God does over the long haul is creating a beautiful legacy. Discouragement is oftentimes in a moment. Hope is oftentimes connected to the legacy. Pick your eyes up and see what God is ultimately doing and trying to do with your family. The second piece is this, and I, I think there's probably a few people who God brought you here to hear this today. There are situations where somebody does all the right things consistently and intentionally over the course of time and for whatever reason, those that were under their influence chose a very, very different path. 
I talked to a mom this week whose kids are now in their 40s who are going a very different direction than what they intended to do, right? And we know of these stories. And sometimes we will beat ourselves up over what did we do wrong that created that type of outcome. And maybe you didn't do anything wrong. The greatest spiritual influencer I know is the person of Jesus. And what's amazing about Jesus is Jesus was this incredible disciple of people. He had 12 friends, real close friends, that he did everything with, every waking hour he spent with these guys. He walked with them, he talked with them, he showed them, he, he, he lived out this amazing example. He loved them, he had grace with them, he forgave them, he did all kinds of things. And yet at the end of the journey, one of them still betrayed him, and others even turned their back on him in a moment. Does that mean that Jesus failed as a disciple maker? No. So let me challenge you in this way when it comes to legacy. I don't wanna let you off the hook as far as what the inputs are. In other words, we need to show up, consistently be present. Our inputs matter. Be intentional, be consistent. But I think we need to let ourselves off the hook for the outcome. God's the one who's in control of outcomes. God's the one who's in control of the ultimate results. We do what we're responsible for to be consistent, be intentional, be present with our family. And let's God do the thing that he does to ultimately write the end of the story. So there's the two values. I, I wanna be people who share God's truth. I wanna be people who leave a godly legacy, but how do we actually do that? What's fascinating is this passage becomes incredibly practical and gives us some venues that we should consider that we show up and we're present and we're intentional with. Here's what it says in verse, uh, verse seven. It says, impress them on your children and he says, talk about them when you sit at home. I'm gonna call that meal time. When you walk along the road, I'm gonna call that road time. When you lie down, I'm gonna call that bedtime. And when you get up, I'm gonna call that play time. I love how practical the Bible is. It just says, hey, just when you're just going about life, think about these things. You don't have to create these kind of unique environments. There are already environments that are embedded in. I want you to use the times that have already been provided. So I wanna think about it this way. These two values that were invested in these four venues. And so let's talk about them real quick. Here's the first, meal time. Uh, I think meal time is a really powerful time. Uh, studies have shown that the families who eat together and eat together consistently are more connected as family units. Now, candidly, this is an area that our family struggles with consistently because the members of my family are going to all kinds of different things. There's all kinds of obligations and commitments that are pulling us a lot of directions that sometimes it's hard to get everybody together and actually share a meal together. But even if it's once a week, twice a week, three times a week, be intentional when you come together as a family, no matter what that family might look like. If you're single, that could be with a roommate, it could be with a close friend, it could be with others that you do life with, Think about who's at my table and be intentional with that time. Now, others of you would say, but I can't talk about spiritual stuff with my family. It's like, we know there's two rules. You don't talk about politics, you don't talk about religion when it comes to your family. But maybe let me challenge you this way. When you engage spiritual conversation around a table, maybe don't engage it around things that are controversial. Maybe do a things that, 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 that ask questions that deepen the spiritual relationship and opportunity. What if you ask questions like this? Where did you see God at work today? What is God teaching you today? 
where have you seen God in the life of somebody else around this circle? We can ask very deep, profound spiritual questions that don't create controversy, but actually call people to lean in. What if the purpose of mealtime wasn't just about stuffing our face? What if the food wasn't the end goal at all? It was just the mechanism God uses to bring us more connected together. Don't underestimate mealtime. Second venue is this. It's just when you walk about it on the, on the road. Uh, talk about it when you're, when you're walking along the road. I think about that as travel time or, or road time. Uh, I love being in the car with people because they can't escape, right? They can't go anywhere. We can, we can have all kinds of conversation. Uh, my oldest son, he's actually in the, the Willow Friends production, which I'm pumped about. It's going to be in a couple weeks here at South Barrington. And, and he's, he's a mentor alongside of one of our great artists, and, and he's having the time of his life. It's great. But because he's in the production, he's in a lot of rehearsals. And so we are burning a route in between my house and the church multiple times a week. But it's just he and I in the car. And we get to talk a lot in, in the car. And I treasure these conversations. There's something about when you're in transition. You're going from, you know, it's where you're coming from to where you're going. You're, you're physically in transition. That for me, it oftentimes opens up incredible opportunity for dialogue. No matter who you're in the car with, consider putting a podcast on and talking about it. Uh, maybe uh, let the other person control the playlist and talk about their music. I let my son control the playlist this week. His music is garbage. It's terrible. But he loves it. And so we had all kinds of conversation about it. It was a you know, fascinating conversation. But, but I find some in this, you know, when you find yourself physically in transition, for whatever reason, people are more open to share whatever it is they're thinking. This week, I was having a conversation with my son on the way back from this place. We were coming back from a rehearsal, and uh, he's turned 16 this summer. And we were talking about getting his license, and he said, yeah, Dad, I'm going to take a road trip. I'm like, oh, you are, huh? Okay. Where are, you, where are you going on this said road trip? He goes, I'm going to the ocean. Oh, you're going to the ocean, are you? Okay. And uh, where are you going to stay when you get to the ocean? He says, well, I'm going to just get a hotel. I'm like, really? What hotel is going to give a hotel room to a uh, 16-year-old? I'm not sure, Dad. I haven't thought about that. Okay, well, let's think about that. We had this interesting conversation. Now, we're not going to let him take this road trip this summer, but here's what it led to is this conversation about with more freedom comes more responsibility. And we had this really, really cool conversation around freedom and responsibility. It's just an opportunity to take advantage of a time that's already baked in. Meal time, road time, bedtime. But think about this third venue of bedtime. Don't underestimate this particular time, particularly those of you who are parents with little kids. Some of the, the values that you want to instill in your family, it is an amazing, amazing time to do so. I know most of you may you know, read to kids when they're at bed, I would encourage you, if you haven't yet started, pray for your kids every single night. If you go, I don't really do that. I don't pray out loud. I don't even know how to do that. This sounds crazy. Google praying for your kids at night. They'll come up with some just simple prayers. And when you're getting in the rhythm of it, just simply read the prayer over them. Speak the prayer over them. Uh, my kids are much older now, uh, but I still have the opportunity to pray for my kids every single night. Night, don't underestimate what God will do in that over the long haul. Candidly, there's a lot of nights in the moments so you're like, is this making a difference at all? 
but over the course of the long haul. There are these beautiful values that are being instilled in the lives of the people that you love the most. As your kids get older, I would also encourage you to do this at bedtime. Look them in the eye. Tell them what you see in them. Encourage them. May the last thought that they have before they go to sleep be that my parents or my parent loves me, is proud of me, is encouraging me. Do that consistently, intentionally, over the course of time. God will write a beautiful story. <laughs> Meal time, car time, travel time, bedtime. The last one is play time. You know, like when you get up, when you're just kind of going about your day, when you're kind of just doing the thing, right? But when I think about like playtime, I think it's really ironic that oftentimes your interests, the things that you really love to do are different than those who are in your family. Have you noticed this? My dad was really into cars. He tried to show me how to fix cars. I could have cared less about cars. Didn't want to have anything to do with it. I grew up as a sports kid. I loved sports. I still, to this day, I can watch any sport at any moment, no matter who's playing. If it has a ball or a puck, I'm in. I love to play sports, everything about it. Then God gave me two boys. I thought, this is amazing. I've got two more people to enjoy all kinds of sports with. You know which one of my kids likes sports? Neither. They both can't stand them. I forced them into sports when they were real little. I took, uh, I, you guys have those like time hopper memories where pictures will pull up uh, from something you took years ago. Uh, this, this week, this picture popped up in my time hop of my son playing soccer seven years ago. So this is my youngest son. <laughs> He's goalie and the game is going on, okay? This is how much my kids have cared about sports from the moment I put them in sports, right? My kids are not sports kids. My oldest loves fishing. I don't like to bait a hook. It is so ironic that our interests are actually quite different. But if I want to be somebody who shares God's truth, if I want to be somebody who builds a godly legacy, here's what I've got to do. I've got to love the things that they love. It's not about what I love. I got to love the things that they love. I got to learn to bait that hook. I got to love to go and sit on the side of a body of water and sit there some more. I don't know, right? I got to learn to love it. Why? Not because I love it because I love them. And if I'm willing to do what they love, whoever that family member is we're talking about, if I'm willing to do what they love, it communicates love to them. Can I push you a little bit on this? Sometimes we as people compare our families to other people's families and we think to ourselves, I wish we had what they have particularly in the age of social media, but just as a quick aside, just so we know, social media is other people's billboards and not their diaries, right? It's what they want you to see, not what's really going on. And so sometimes we like compare ourselves to other people's families like, man, I wish my kid did that, or I really wish my dad did that, or I really wish my sister did that. Like, I really wish I had what they had. God didn't give you what they have. God give you what you have. And I think that you were uniquely equipped by God to invest in the family that he gave you. 
Love the family you have, not the one you wish you had. Maybe I'll say it this way. Love the, love the family you have, not the one that you thought you would have. Lindsay and I had a discussion this week that we thought to ourselves, this is not what we thought it would be like to raise two teen, teenage boys. It's not bad. It's just not what we thought it would be. We had kind of a picture of what we thought it would be. But here's the truth. Love the family you have, not the one you thought you would have. Because the beautiful thing is God has uniquely equipped you in this moment, in this season, for the people that God has put you in your life. Love what God has given you. If you love what God has given you, what you'll find are these amazing opportunities to share his truth. What you'll find is the opportunity to build a godly legacy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Impress that on your family. In just a moment, we're going to have just some members of our prayer team. They're going to come up front. If we can pray for you, we would love that opportunity to do so. I realize in conversations like families, for some of us, family dynamics are really challenging. And if we can talk with you, pray with you, pray over you, pray that God will turn some things, we would love that opportunity to pray for you. I just ask that you just come forward. If you're even in the mezzanine, we'll, t- we'll, we'll take the time. You can come down and really be down front. This is the opportunity we have to, to serve you, to be with you, to pray God's blessing over you, your children, your children's children, and what God will do for generations. Let's take a moment and pray together. God, we love you. We say thanks for who you are and how you lead us. God, I thank you for this amazing anchor that you've given us in scripture. This incredible challenge to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, but even more, even in addition to that, that we impress that on our families. And God, our love for you, our commitment to you can ring true for generations. God, we give that to you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.